vision or have another print disability which makes reading, holding a book, or turning a page difficult or impossible. The content is copyrighted by the respective publishers. For more information, please visit us on the web at nfradioreading.org. Hello, this is Patricia, and for the next hour, I'll be reading from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The Journal for May 31st, front page, County Challenges Certain Roman Appointments, by Benjamin Joe. Mayor Michelle Roman's authority to appoint commissioners of deeds is being challenged by Niagara County after a ruling on a local lawsuit. On May 12th, County Attorney Claude George sent a letter to Laura Miskell-Benedict, Corporation Counsel for the City of Lockport, advising that all appointments of Commissioners of Deeds by the City of Lockport are invalid, null, and void. Ruling on a legal challenge filed May 9th against Willard Schumeister, Jr., a candidate for North Tonawanda City Council, State Supreme Court Justice Ed Pace determined that Roman's appointment of North Tonawanda Democrat Gail Tylick as a Commissioner of Deeds was improper, but excusable and still valid, since Roman was unaware of state law dictating that Commissioners of Deeds must be appointed by the legislative branch. Commissioners of Deeds are able to carry nominating petitions anywhere in the county for candidates registered with a different political party than the one they're looking to be nominated by. An example is a Democratic Commissioner of Deeds collecting Democratic signatures for a registered Republican trying to get the Democratic nod. George said in a brief phone interview Tuesday that while no candidate in the 2023 elections would be affected, Going forward, the power to appoint commissioners of deeds should not be in the mayor's hands. I sent the letter to provide the information that it was illegal, according to a Supreme Court judge, Jorg said. Pace's written de decision found, the executive, found that the executive law section 139, which says commissioners of deeds are to be appointed by the common councils outside New York City, may not be superseded by the actions or traditions of a city council or mayor. Mayoral appointment of commissioners is more than a tradition in the Lock City, according to Deputy Corporation Counsel Jason Caffarella. The city charter expressly provides the mayor with that authority, he said. The city's legal position is that the city charter is valid, as are the mayor's powers to appoint commissioner of deeds pursuant to the same. The un unrelated and non-binding decision from an elections law case does not alter the city's position, Caffarella stated on a May 22nd written reply to Jorg. Further, he said, the county attorney doesn't get to supersede mayoral appointments. You do not have the legal authority to declare the duly appointed City of Lockport Commissioner of Deeds as invalid, null, and void, Caffarella wrote. I welcome any legal authority which permits you, as an attorney for the county, to usurp the power of the Mayor of Lockport and revoke current Commissioner of Deeds. According to North Tonawanda Mayor Austin Tylick, Commissioners of Deeds in his city are appointed by the Common Council. Tylek suggested Roman's appointments are valid because Lockport is the county seat. Tylek is the son of Gail Tylek. Pilot Program in Wilson by Thomas Tedesco. A new after-school program has high school students looking to the skies. This year, Wilson High School introduced a drone club that teaches the members how to properly operate and pilot drones. The club is headed by the District School Resource Officer, Talon Sukleski. Sukleski, a deputy with the Niagara County Sheriff's Office, was hired as the district's first school resource officer this past September and subsequently brought his knowledge of drones with him. He said he has been a licensed drone pilot for about five years and once faculty members heard that he was a pilot, they were interested in finding a way to introduce drones to students. 
It was a good way to reach out to a different group of students, Sukaleski said. After a few months of planning and securing grant funds to purchase seven drones, the club officially got off the ground in February. The club ran for 10 weeks with two classes per week, wrapping up in early May. The club's goal is to educate students on drone safety and have them understand the rules and responsibilities of piloting drones. Any student who has interest any student who has a continued interest in drones could use the skills they learn for the Federal Aviation Administration Part 107 test that certifies an individual to pilot a drone, Sukaleski said. While many people pilot drones for recreational purposes, Sukaleski said drones can serve a practical purpose for the school. If the school needed a roof inspection or was having an issue with a part of the roof or a heating system or something, instead of putting a person up on the roof, we could just take pictures with the drone, he said. Five students participated in the first session of the drone club. Sukleski said he is hopeful that the club's numbers grow when it starts back up again next school year. We took some cool videos, so once those videos come out and people see the capabilities of it, I think it'll start to grow. This is just the beginning of good things to come, he said. Five Tips for Bicycling Lockport by Jim Schultz. As any child who has just shed their training wheels knows, riding a bicycle is like flying without ever leaving the ground. Summer is almost here, and with it we begin Lockport's glorious season of bike riding. I have been an avid bicycle rider since I was a child and everywhere that I have lived and traveled in the world. So I mean it when I say that Lockport is bicycle heaven. Our streets are flat and most have very little car traffic at all. You can pedal to almost anywhere you want in less than 20 minutes. And of course we have the famous bike path along the Erie Canal that attracts riders from all over the planet. As everyone starts pulling those bikes out of the garage and pumping up the tires, here are five tips for enjoying bicycling in Lockport. First, where can you get a bike if you don't have one? If you want a new one, your options range from Walmart to Burt's Bikes and bikes for every price and style. For a used one, the annual Lockport Police Bicycle Auction has some good bikes every year, but that isn't until late summer or fall. In the meantime, I recently discovered a wonderful one-man bicycle restoration operation here, run by Paul Webb. You can find him most weekends in the front yard of his house on East Avenue, just past the post office, in a sea of excellent used bikes that he has fixed up well and sells at affordable prices. Whether for child or grown-up, his bikes are definitely worth a look. Second, consider going upright. A lot of us began our bike riding hunched over low handlebars designed for racing, a stance that gets less comfortable as you get older. Years ago in Amsterdam, I discovered an entire city population, young and old alike, all getting around on bikes. And all of them were riding bikes that just let them sit up comfortable and straight. After my first ride on a Dutch bike, I was sold. I've modified every bike I've had since to have upright handlebars. Give it a try. Another thing I noticed there, here is that a lot of people ride with their seat really low, sending their bent knees flying awkwardly in the air with every stroke. If that's the position you love, have at it. But the recommended position for cycling is to put the seat high enough so that your leg is only slightly bent on the downstroke. Give that a try too. Third, where are some great places to ride in Lockport beyond the Canalway Trail? I have a whole set of local rides that I love cruising around our beautiful city at 10 miles per hour. One of my favorites is across the Exchange Street Bridge to Lower Town. That part of the city is great for a ride through quiet neighborhood streets. I especially like riding there in the early morning past beautiful McCollum Orchards, a 100-acre organic farm right in the city. I also love to ride out to Outwater Park or on the quiet streets behind the hospital or in the peaceful neighborhood near the Keenan Center. Fourth, look for ways to turn your errands into exercise on a bike. 
Here are some of the things I regularly love doing by bicycle here in Lockport. Ride with my granddaughter to RJ's for ice cream. Meet a friend at Steamworks. Buy apples at Niagara Produce. Return a book to the library. Ride to Charles Upson Elementary to read Dr. Seuss to the kindergartners. Pick up Chinese food at Mayflower. Visit the Lockport Community Farmer's Market. What small trip could you do by bike this summer instead of a car? Fifth, let's make bicycle riding safer in Lockport. Some simple things will help, like creating a map and putting up some signs for recommended bike routes around the city. This would give people suggestions of the best streets for safe riding. As far as bicycles go, the real barriers to riding are downtown. Most people won't get near Main Street on two wheels. But other cities have done all kinds of common sense things to make biking safer on their main streets, from bike lanes to safer intersections. We should look at what other cities have done and try to get, try out the best ideas. My neighbor across the street, Walter Brewer, was famous for his bicycle riding before he died. At 100 years old, he would still be out there early each morning, headed off on his giant three-wheeler even in wintertime. Bicycling is a special joy, whether you are five years old or 100 or somewhere in between. Have a great and safe time riding this summer. You can look out for me out there. I'll be the old guy sitting upright and honking his silly horn at the children and flying without ever having to leave the ground. Jim Schultz is the founder and executive director of the Democracy Center and a father, grandfather, and bicycle rider in Lockport. He can be reached by email at jimschultztherider@gmail.com. The Lockport Union Sun and Journal for June 1st. Front page, Ambulance Vote Lawsuit Dropped by Benjamin Joe. A lawsuit challenging the Common Council's December vote to restart ambulance transport service by Lockport Fire Department has been dropped. The suit filed in State Supreme Court April 18th by 4th Ward Alderman Catherine Fogel, past Alderman-at-Large Gina Passeri, and Joseph Kibler and city residents Blake Lemoy, alleged the December 19, 2022 special meeting in which the vote occurred was illegal. The suit further took issue with the way Fogel's vote was counted. She said abstain, and a deputy city attorney advised that's the equivalent of a no, setting up a three-to-three tie among the aldermen that was broken by Mayor Michelle Roman. The city received word Wednesday that the suit was withdrawn by the plaintiff's attorney, James Ostrowski. Deputy Corporation Counsel Jason Caffarella said the city had submitted a motion to dismiss the lawsuit and Fogel et al. never responded. There was no opposition papers and then they said in an email that they had withdrawn the petition. Prior to the council's Wednesday meeting, Fogel replied to questions about the lawsuit with a declaration, we won. They revoted. that's an admission of, go- of guilt, she said. We don't need the lawsuit because we won. The council did conduct a second vote on LFD's re-entry to the ambulance transport business during its regularly scheduled April 26 business meeting. The vote was 5-0 to zero in favor, with Fogel absent and the successors to Passeri and Kirsten Bernard, who both quit their posts in January, joining the other aldermen in voting yes. Like Fogel, Kibler said he's fine with the lawsuit being withdrawn. I was just against the procedure in December, he said. I want the ambulance back. They saved my life a couple of times. As long as they're following procedure, it's okay by me. Well, it was in play, Caffarella said the lawsuit was handled in-house, meaning no outside counsel was employed. The city did everything appropriately in December, and the evidence proved it, he said. First Ward Alderman Paul Beekman, council president, waved off the litigation at another, as another attempt by the local Republican Party to abolish public ambulance service. 
Bringing back ambulance service under city control has probably been the most important decision the mayor and city council has made in the last 100 years, he declared. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service, continuing with the June 1st journal, journal local section. Stamp Work Under Review in Genesee County by Mark Shear. The U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service has informed the Tonawanda Seneca Nation that it intends to take a closer look at the potential environmental impact of a plan to build a wastewater pipeline through a national wildlife refuge to connect a 1,250-acre industrial park in rural Genesee County with Oak Orchard Creek and Lake Ontario. In a letter dated May 15th to the Tonawanda Council of Chiefs, Holly Gabarel, Acting Regional Chief for the National Wildlife Refuge System, said her agency plans to initiate a supplemental environmental assessment of the project. The supplemental assessment would allow for additional review and public comment. Well, Gaboriel in indicated in her letter that, pending the review, a right-of-way permit previously obtained for the project by the Genesee County Economic Development Center would be suspended pending a final decision. A subsequent letter sent on May 26 by the National Wildlife Refuge System Regional Chief Scott Cahan to Tonawanda Seneca Chief Roger Hill acknowledges the plan to continue consultation with the nation as part of the environmental assessment while determining that the agency's authority to suspend the right-of-way permit is limited to circumstances not pres present. Leaders from the Tonawanda Seneca Nation, as well as local wildlife advocates, have protested plans to build the pipeline, which, if constructed, would carry millions of gallons of wastewater per day from the Science, Technology, and Advanced Manufacturing Park, commonly known as STAMP. Nation leaders have expressed concern about continued development of the STAMP and its potential impact on neighboring Tonawanda Seneca territory, including an old-growth forest area known as the Big Woods. They commended Fish and Wildlife's decision to further assess the proposed pipeline's environmental impact. As the original inhabitants of this area, the nation is especially concerned about the damage the pipeline and associated industrial facilities would do to the wetlands, the waters, the plants, the animals, and the environment on and around the nation and our ancestral territory, said Linda Logan, Tonawanda Seneca Nation citizen and Bear Clan mother. The GCEDC obtained a right-of-way permit for the pipeline in 2021, but has yet to proceed with construction. Jim Kresick, a spokesperson for the GCEDC, said his agency had not been notified of any changes in the status of the permit and continues to proceed accordingly. The GCEDC has a valid permit and right away in place with USFWS and the GCEDC has not been notified of anything to the contrary, Kresick said. Genesee County's Economic Development Agency has so far spent more than $30 million in mostly state money from former Governor Andrew Cuomo's Buffalo Billions on Stamp, which has been under development for more than a decade. With help from the state and federal government, the agency has attempted to position the industrial site as a potential landing spot for a large-scale microchip manufacturing operation. Their efforts have been lauded by some of the most prominent voices in state and federal politics and government, including Governor Kathy Hochul and U.S. Senator Charles Schumer, a Democrat from New York. While they have yet to sign up any chip fab operations, Genesee County 
economic development officials have secured commitments from two tenants at the stamp, including Plug Power, a hydrogen fuel production company, and more recently, Edwards Vacuum, a British company that specializes in vacuum equipment. Plug Power initially announced plans to invest $291 million to develop a green hydrogen facility that would have created 68 jobs at Stamp that, with hydropower from the New York Power Authority and other subsidies, would come at a public cost of $4 million per job. Getting Kids Excited About Science by Lisa Bielmeyer. Royalton Heartland High School teacher Colleen Burkett has been named Outstanding High School Science Teacher of the Year by the Western New York section of the American Chemical Society. ACS is the world's largest scientific society and one of the leading sources of authoritative scientific information. I am honored to be recognized by the American Chemical Society. I have been a member of this professional society since college, Burkett said and have, been, have seen so many wonderful educators and scientists recognized for their efforts in their field of expertise. I am honored to be included in that list of individuals. Burkett received her Bachelor's of Arts in Chemistry in 2006 from the College of Worcester, then joined the University of Arizona's Surface and Imaging Facilities as a research assistant. She trained and led numerous teams that involved high school, undergraduate, and graduate students in analysis and problem solving in a laboratory setting. She created coursework and assessments while acting as a lead teaching assistant throughout her time in Arizona. When Burkett came to work for the district, Superintendent Jill Hex said she was an experienced, knowledgeable, she was experienced, knowledgeable, and had such a great background in chemistry from her work in the field. We are fortunate to get her on our staff and she will continue to be an asset. Burkett also teaches Regents Chemistry and College Chemistry through Niagara County Community College. She has developed a new curriculum through a professional development grant and implemented a modern classroom format often referred to as flipped classroom in which learning is student-centered and self-paced. She has ensured that her students meet academic benchmarks while remaining up-to-date and well-informed on science, industry topics, and progress. The, best, the single best thing about being an educator is seeing the light bulb moment for a student, Burkett said. It's the moment that they finally make a connection between something we're learning and a real-world phenomenon. It's the moment that they finally grasp a difficult topic we've been working on for a while. It's the moment when they tell you, oh, this makes sense. I know most of my students won't go on to study chemistry beyond high school, but I love getting students, kids excited about science in their real lives, and I hope they carry this enthusiasm with them into the future. At Roy Hart, Burkett is known for lending to her fellow teachers her expertise in digital tools and learning management systems. She's also known to be dedicated to her students, colleagues, and the community, and says she's grateful for the support she receives in turn. This award also made me incredibly thankful for a supportive administration. My principal, Gary Bell, and Superintendent Jill Heck have given me the freedom to explore new and interesting teaching methodologies in my classroom, and we see it paying off dividends in the way my students are motivated to learn, Burkett said. The Lockport Union Sun and Journal for June 2nd, front page. Autumn Gardens Packed Okay by Benjamin Joe. A new payment in lieu of taxes agreement between the city of Lockport and the new owner of Autumn Gardens Phase Two Senior Apartments was approved Wednesday by the Common Council. Capital Realty Group, which is preparing to purchase Autumn Gardens Phase Two, is entering a 20-year pilot agreement with the city that has it paying more than three times the annual sum spelled out in the original 50-year pilot agreement. The new deal calls for a first-year payment of $25,445, 
with the amount rising by 3% each year for five years, rising by 4% each year for the following eight years, and rising by 5% each year for the following seven years. Historically, the property on East High Street generated $8,000 a year for the city since 1977, when a deal between Sam and Diane Sansone, Lockport Housing Authority, and the city of Lockport was hammered out. That pilot agreement was set to expire in 2028, but with Capital Realty's procurement of 96 units, a new deal was proposed. Capital Realty Group is going to be repurposing it. They'll be investing into it and updating all the units, Mayor Michelle Roman said. This is still with the Housing Authority. It's a single one-bedroom units, a couple of two-bedrooms, and it's mostly for seniors who have limited income. Mark Steiff, Director of Acquisitions for Capital Realty, Group gave a brief overview of the company's plan for Autumn Gardens Phase 2. Our objective, our approach, is to purchase it and do a full redevelopment. It will probably take about 12 months once we start construction. It will probably take three or four months just for the planning phase, he said. Stife said more employees will be taking care of the property, including a property manager, maintenance staff, and janitorial staff. He added that landscaping will be done by local contractors. There's going to be opportunities for full-time employment, he said. The council vote to approve the new pilot agreement was 4-2. Second Ward Alderman Luke Cantor and Fourth Ward Alderman Catherine Fogel cast the nays. Alderman at large Lisa Swanson-Gellerson said she voted for it so as not to hold up closing of the sale which is contingent upon the pilot agreement being in place. There is a waiting list for apartments at Autumn Gardens, she noted. My concern was keeping the buyer in Lockport and making it accessible, she said. Autumn Gardens Phase 2 consists of 96 apartment units in several buildings to the rear of 74-unit Autumn Gardens Phase 1, which is owned by the City of Lockport Housing Authority. LHA Steers, Tennessee at Phase 2. From the opinions page of the June 2nd Journal, Boomers Get Blamed for Climate Bell-Bottoms by Nell Mossoff. Although it's been on the rise over the past few years, baby boomer bashing seems extra popular lately, even more so than pickleball. I don't know why our culture insists on naming generations in the first place. I suppose because it's easier to lump groups together when you want to talk about them behind their backs. It takes less energy to say things like all Gen Zers would rather game than work, or those millennials sure don't know what a turn circle signal is, do they? And of course, okay, boomer. I am sure I would be guilty of lumping generational groups together if I could even remember which age group belongs to that label. But since I never do, it's much simpler to roll my eyes and mutter young people when I spot a 20-something dropping an empty water bottle into a paper recycling bin instead of correctly sorting it like we of the 1970s almost always do. But it does seem like boomers are taking the heat for almost all of society's ills, more than ever before. Boomers get blamed for everything from climate change to the imminent demise of Social Security, a rumor this boomer has been hearing for the past 40 years that still hasn't happened and hopefully never will. Boomers slow up lines at the grocery store by writing checks. Boomers ruin the economy by refusing to raise the minimum age wage Boomers never stood up for anyone or anything other than themselves. What none of the boomer bashers seem to realize is that simply because there were, are so many boomers, most of us never had the power to change anything other than our socks. Very few of us were trust fund kids, and we've slogged through life working towards the same things our children are working toward, a home, a hearth, and a little security. 
Your average boomer isn't inherently evil. More like inherently addled thanks to all the time logged in front of shows like Petticoat Junction and Mork and Mindy while ingesting Tang and Sugar Babies. Someone said to me just last week that all a boomer is good for now is dying, a remark I found rather harsh, not to mention hurtful. Boomers have even been tagged the worst generation ever. Give me a break. I'm sure Attila the Hun's generation had to be worse than the baby boomers. Labeling, pigeonholing, and generally categorizing people according to when they were born is silly, not to mention ageist. It reminds me of the Chinese horoscopes that go by year, so everyone born in the year of the rat or the year of the monkey theoretically share the same personality traits, which means that everyone born in 1964, the year of the dragon, is charismatic and intelligent. Just for fun, I googled people born in 1964, and it turns out there were a lot of charismatic people born that year, so maybe I'm wrong. Still, it's important to remember that among the babies that were born between 1946 and 1964, the boomer years, there were some pretty diverse personalities, including Barack Obama, Donald Trump, and Cher. I'd never say this to a millennial, but methinks the generations that came after the boomers are simply jealous they didn't grow up with free television, the Beatles, and creepy crawlers. They wish they'd had moms who drove Mustangs and dads who wore bell bottoms. Well, guess what, kids? It's your life and you get to shape it. You can even go out and get a Mustang and bell bottoms for yourself. But speaking for my fellow tail end of the baby boomers, we'd appreciate it if you'd stop picking on us. We survived mercury fillings, the big hair 80s, and that long tense summer after a supposedly dead Bobby Ewing appeared very much alive in the shower on Dallas, only to learn it was all a dream the following fall. I think that's enough for any generation to handle, even the tail end of one. Now Musuf is a freelance writer based in Mankato, Minnesota. She can be reached at nmusolf at gmail.com. You're listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. Continuing with the journal for June 2nd, the opinions page. Newspapers inextricably tied to liberty. Jim Sackery. In a perfect democracy, the people would always have a voice. A perfect government would always put the interest of the governed above the interests of the governing. A perfect legislature would also place people above politics and policy above party. In a perfect world, government would always be open, accessible, and completely transparent. It is not a perfect world. From the courthouse to the White House, power is abused, the powerful do all they can to hold on to power, and the will of the people is usurped by the will of political parties. Government must be held accountable. The role has historically fallen to the fourth estate. The media, or more accurately, newspapers, have a long legacy of holding government at every level accountable for its actions and its inaction. Since long before the formation of the Republic, newspapers have been our public watchdog and consequently are inextricably tied to our liberty. Were it not for a courageous female newspaper publisher in 1774, the American Revolution may never have happened. Clementina Rind, publisher of the Virginia Gazette, boldly published Thomas Jefferson's revolutionary a summary view of the rights of British America. Had it not been for a summary view, there may have never been a declaration of independence. Holding the powerful accountable, however, is not merely what newspapers, newspapers do, it is what they do. Every day, local reporters protect democracy by keeping an eye on city council, county commission, board of education, and each public government agency in our communities. A world or a community without a newspaper 
keeping a watchful eye on legislation, taxation, and government spending is a world and a community less free. Perhaps in a perfect world, we would not need to keep an eye on government, protect the public purpose, defend the First Amendment, and protect the public's right to know. But until that time comes when government always does right things in right ways at the right times, it's a good thing we have the fourth estate, the public watchdog, our community newspapers. The Lockport Union Sun and Journal for June 3rd through 4th, front page. Pendleton seeking a fix for Nine Mile Island, Benjamin Joe. A much-used camping area owned by the town of Pendleton will not host campers this summer. So far, town officials have not announced their plan for Nine Mile Island Town Park. Town board member Scott Lombardo said on Friday that the board is trying to salvage the rest of the season for campers, but there's nothing fast in the government. We're trying to stake a deal with the Four Seasons Day Camp, Lombardo said. Four Seasons has been leasing some land in the park every summer. We're asking they assist in cleaning up in exchange for letting them have their daycare there that summer, this summer, Lombardo said. We're also trying to work separately with the scout groups. We want them to fill out a facility use agreement, and that spells out the insurance the town needs for each group. As long as they fill those out, we can vote on it. Meanwhile, Mike Zimmerman, chair of Nine Mile Island Youth Camp Board, said groups that already paid a deposit to the organization, approximately a $50 to $75 annual fee, will get their money back, but they are encouraged to donate the money instead as the nonprofit organization is dissolved. Nine Mile Island Camp Incorporated was incorporated in 1962 and the park has been used by scouting groups since the 1950s. According to a, a history writer written by Doug Eady, a former president of the organization, since incorporation, Nine Mile Island Camp Incorporated had survived through camp fees, including those paid by Four Seasons Day Camp. In April, town attorney Cloud Jorg sent a certified letter informing the organization that its use permit had been terminated, meaning it could no longer manage camping in the park. Earlier this week, Zimmerman talked with the Union Sun and Journal about events leading up to the closure of Nine Mile Island Camp. In the course, he spoke well of Bob Reynolds, the ranger who resided on site part of the year and took care of the property. All the things that needed to be done, Reynolds did, Zimmerman said. As an all-volunteer organization, it would have been impossible to cover if we didn't have someone living there. And he was a volunteer. He did not get paid. The only thing was he stayed there, and that was his compensation. Reynolds is in his 70s, and Zimmerman said it was relayed to camp principals that the town had liability concerns as Reynolds lived in the park. Zimmerman said he doesn't see how Nine Mile Island Camp could function without a representative regularly on the property. Further, he suggested town officials are not considering the possible liabilities that could arise from not having someone on the property. Action to pull Nine Mile Island Youth Camp's use permit began in October 2022, when town board member David Liebel presented photos showing signs of disrepair on the property. According to the minutes of the October board meeting, Liebel recommended sending in the town building inspector and closing the camp. While Zimmerman addressed the town board in angry terms during its May meeting, shortly after the letter from the town was received, town resident Anne-Marie Reeb praised Liebel he was appointed to Parks and Li Liaison by the supervisor. He was the only one who did his job, she said. As Nine Mile Island Youth Camp Incorporated is legally dissolved, the directors will sell off equipment and pay any outstanding bills. 
Donated camp deposits would help with that, Zimmerman said, and if there's any surplus, it would be divided equally among Boy Scout and Girl Scout troops in the area. From the local section of the June 3rd through 4th Journal, Park Place Residents Damaged by Fire Fire caused $28,000 of damage to an apartment on Park Place Thursday afternoon. Lockport Fire Department fielded a call about a fire at 28 Park Place about 4 p.m. June 1st. Upon arrival, firefighters observed smoke coming from a detached garage that had been turned into an apartment. The tenant was seen trying to put out the fire with a garden hose. According to Fire Chief Luca Gualiano, crews worked for two hours to extinguish the blaze. One firefighter sustained a wrist injury and was sent to Eastern Niagara Hospital for evaluation by Benjamin Joe. Memorial Event to Honor Bob Baxter by Mark Shear. Memorial service honoring Bob Baxter, the local poet, author, and college professor who was a driving force behind efforts to remove the Robert Moses Parkway near the Niagara River Will be, later, will be held later this month at Niagara County Community College. Friends and associates of Baxter, who taught English and creative writing at NCCC for more than 25 years, are invited to attend the memorial event, which will be held on June 24th at the college. Baxter died March 15th at age 84. The Niagara Falls native and graduate of Trop Vocational High School joined the faculty at NCCC in 1970. A poet and author of several books, Baxter was well known in local literary circles as a talented writer, editor, and mentor to other writers and poets. A leading voice for parkway removal, Baxter was a founder of the Niagara Heritage Partnership a citizens group that advocated for the preservation and restoration of the region's environment with a focus on the Niagara Gorge. Through his work with the partnership, Baxter pushed for full removal of the entire 6.5 mile parkway between Niagara Falls and Lewiston. In 2016, the state agreed to finance the reconfiguration of the parkway from Main Street to Fidlake Drive. State officials have since approved additional funding to begin the initial stages of study to reconfigure the remainder of the parkway, now known as the Niagara Scenic Parkway, from Fidley Drive to Lewiston. Baxter's memorial service will be held from 3 to 5 p.m. June 24th in room G211 at NCCC, 3111 Saunders Settlement Road, Sanborn. From the Features section of the June 3rd and 4th Journal, Strategies to Beat the Heat by Maureen Went. Summer-like weather and warmer days are upon us. Remaining safe in the heat is something we should all be thinking about. This week we're experiencing high temperatures, so it is a good a time to review some summer safety tips for all ages and some for seniors particularly. Limit your exposure to the sun. Place comfortable lawn chairs in shaded areas. Stay indoors between 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. when the, the, rays are, the sun's rays are the strongest. Drink lots of fluids. Drink a glass of water hourly or keep a cool glass of water within arm's reach as a reminder to drink. Provide non-alcoholic beer or lemonade for backyard barbecues. As our bodies age, skin and fat tissue, the, the body's insulation, tend to thin. Because of that change, seniors regulate temperature less efficiently, putting them at greater risk than others from heat-related health problems. Signs of dehydration or heat exhaustion are less pronounced in seniors who tend to perspire less than younger people, meaning their bodies don't shed heat as easily may lose some of their sense of thirst and not feel thirsty until severe dehydration is set in and may take high blood pressure and heart disease medications that remove salt and fluids from the body. 
These medications, coupled with heat, can cause a senior to become dehydrated, leading to confusion, organ damage, and even death. Seniors, here's how to beat the heat. Slow down. Strenuous activity in extremely hot weather adds strain to the heart. If you must be active, choose the coolest part of the day. Take regular breaks when engaging in physical activity. If you think that you or someone else show signs of heat-related illness, stop your activity, find a cool place, drink fluids, and apply cold compresses. And don't forget to use UV skin protection. Stay in the shade. A covered porch or under a tree are good choices. Wear a wide-brimmed hat and umbrella to protect yourself from sun overexposure. Plan outdoor activities in the cooler early morning or evening hours. Stay cool. If you don't have air conditioning, spend time at an air-conditioned shopping center, senior center, library, movie theater, restaurant, or place of worship. If that's not an option, stay in the coolest part of your house, usually the lowest floor. Close curtains or shades on sunny windows to keep out heat and light. Use portable and ceiling fans and or battery-operated handheld fans and misters. Use wet washcloths or ice cubes wrapped in a washcloth to pat your wrists, face, and back of the neck. Take cool baths or showers. Install outdoor awnings or sunscreens. Stay hydrated. Carry water or juice with you and drink continuously even if you do not feel thirsty. Avoid alcohol and caffeine, which dehydrate the body. Eat small meals and eat more often. Avoid foods that are high in protein, which increase metabolic heat. Sandwiches, salads, fresh fruit, and vegetables are good choices. Avoid using salt tablets unless directed to do so by a physician. Dress for the heat. Wear lightweight, light-colored clothing. Light colors will reflect away some of the sun's energy. Wear a hat or use an umbrella. Take the heat seriously. Rapid heartbeat, dizziness, diarrhea, nausea, headache, chest pain, fatigue, clammy skin, mental changes, or breathing problems are warning signs that you should seek immediate medical attention. Heat-related illnesses can get serious quickly. Also, discuss with your doctor how medications and or chronic conditions may affect your body's ability to manage heat. You are listening to a reading of articles and features from the Lockport Union Sun and Journal on the Niagara Frontier Radio Reading Service. The journal for June 6, front page. Rock the Locks returns. 2023 Rock the Locks, the free Friday night concert series on Canal Street, kicks off this week with a performance by Alex Feig and Friends. Lockport Main Street Incorporated has lined up three concerts this month, all taking place from 6 to 8 p.m. Fridays through June 23rd. LMSI will have a food and drink tent and vendors will be present each week beginning at 5 p.m. The environment is family friendly and concert goers are encouraged to bring chairs. Alex Vegan Friends is an indie rock outfit with a wide range of catchy and emotionally driven original melodies. In addition, the band performs a number of recognizable covers. The band members are Corey Berger on drums, Pete Samaniak on bass, Evan Anstey on lead guitar and fiddle, and Alex Feig on guitar. Dakes, Stockton, and Pocket Change will jam on June 16th. Pop Rocks is slated to perform the June 23rd concert. Pop Rocks is a five-piece band composed of veteran members of the Western New York music scene who specialize in 80s pop and rock. Rick Kinder, lead vocals. Steve Stempian, keyboards and vocals. Rich Solomon, guitar and vocals. Scott Nethery, bass and vocals. Eric Cummins, drums and vocals. Rock the Locks is sponsored by Net Plus Alliance, Consumers Beverages, and Resurgence Brewery. For more information, visit www.
LockportMainStreet.com. Four facing off for GOP lines in Town of Lockport Council race by Benjamin Joe. Rick Zimmerman and Derek Howe of the Town of Lockport come to the table with an attitude of serving the people and stand by that description. Howe, who works for an engineering firm in Buffalo, and Zimmerman, a watch and clock repairman, said they would always put the people first. The two will be judged on the June 27th GOP line primary as they go up against longtime incumbents Pat Sajic and Tom Keogh, who've served for 15 and 10 years, respectively, on the town council. Sajic and Keogh point to a list of accomplishments made in just the first two years and view each member of the board as a team member. The list includes $14.1 million on capital fund projects for water lines and the rebuild of a sewer lift station, public safety improvements like sidewalks along Shimmer Drive, industrial park expansions to Bison Bag, custom laser and more, and improvements to the Day Road Park like the Santa Claus House. However, for Zimmerman and Howe, there are certain issues that do not, do not match up. Zimmerman is passionate in his views of assessments. They keep saying they're not raising our taxes, he said in a Thursday interview. But they are. In fact, by allowing assessments and reassessments plague their constituents, Zimmerman said. Every year, the town performs a reassessment of all its properties. There is no law requiring this to be done every year, and when Zimmerman saw that his own tax reassessment skyrocketed to over $110,000, he knew he had to run for office. They've lowered the rate but raised the assessment, so my taxes didn't go up by 2%, they went up by 12%. So there's no cap on my taxes and there's no, there's no tax on my assessment. There's only a tax. There's only a cap on my rate, and I think that the assessment should be capped, he said. Howe agrees with Zimmerman on the topic and said furthermore that he'd like to figure out the spending of the town. I want to know the why, why, why. In other words, to do an analysis. I mean, to look into the nitty-gritty, because what's reported and available isn't enough. On the internet and the website is a budget and we have access to the financials, but we don't see the information that's feeding that. And I want to see the nitty gritty, he said. The two hopefuls views were challenged by the incumbents. Well, it is true that assessments are reevaluated by the town on a yearly basis, Keogh said. Waiting longer between assessments would have a jarring effect for the constituents. It'd be more a lot more striking if we waited, he said. Still, the two newcomers say they can do better. I try to be a student of the Constitution of the United States and encourage every U.S. citizen to study the Declaration of Independence also, Howe said in a press release. As a Christian man, I use biblical principles to live my life and make decisions as best I can. I like people. I will work to have any law removed that demonstrates government overreach. From the local page of the June 6th journal, Revitalizing the Waterfront in Newfane, Tom Tedesco. The town of Newfane will soon be looking to make upgrades to the waterfront at Alcott Beach. A few years ago, the town received a $60,000 grant from New York State through the local waterfront revitalization plan. The town will also be responsible for matching 25% of the grant. The LWRP will focus on both sides of 18 Mile Creek in an area spanning the intersection of West Main Street and Route 18 going east towards Crawl Park. When the town received the grant, the state required the town to create a waterfront advisory committee to plan and develop the project. The committee consists of town and county officials, as well as over a dozen Olcott community members, including representatives from its businesses, yacht club, 
marina, fire department, and volunteer slash service-oriented residents, according to Town Supervisor John Syracuse. The town will hire Wendell Engineering as consultants for the project. We have a really good cross-section of people working on this committee, Syracuse said. One of the primary concerns that the committee will be looking to address with the LWRP is traffic patterns, access to the waterfront, and redesigning access to the pier. Syracuse said they would like to put in sidewalks along Route 18 to help connect the marina on the west side of 18 Mile Creek to the east side where Crawl Park is located. It's hard to get people down to the park, he said. Shuttling people from the west side of Alcott from the marina to the east side where the shops are, there's a little bit of hindrance. The town will be engaging in the first part of planning for the project with a public hearing on June 29th at the Alcott Fire Hall, 1691 Lockport Alcott Road at 6.30 p.m. Syracuse said there is no specific timetable for the project, but they intend to hold at least two more meetings on the LWRP before it gets adopted at the local level and moves on to state and federal approval. From the obituary section of the June 6th Journal, George E. Tompkinson, born May 14, 1929, died June 3, 2023. Carrie A. Wright, born March 25, 1978, died June 4, 2023. Linda Ann McDonough, Born November 28, 1940, died June 3, 2023. You have been listening to a reading of articles and features from current issues of the Lockport Union Sun and Journal. Your reader has been Patricia. Thank you for listening. County residents call the Erie County Snow Line at 716-858-SNOW for non-life-threatening but serious situations. County employees will answer calls 24-7 during the current blizzard. Callers can leave a message if there is a high call volume. For medical emergencies call 911. Residents can also send questions to snow at erie.gov.
following program is intended for listeners who are blind, have low vision, or have another print disability, who 